You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. Thank you all for being here to join us for an important series of conversations. I'm Jason Rezaian. I'm a global opinions writer here at the Washington Post. This is my wife, Yegi Rezaian, senior researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. I was born in Iran. As a girl and a young woman growing up in the Islamic Republic, I grew love for English, for good storytelling, and for American literature and Hollywood movies. The Iranian Revolution wasn't something I experienced. Instead, I was born into the system. Soon I learned that limitations and restrictions enforced and imposed by the regime on us does not match the hopes and dreams of Iranian people and what we would like to make our life based on those. And I was born in Marin County, California, and that's where I grew up. Um, I had a love for travel and for storytelling, and that's really what led me into a, a journalistic path. And I wasn't able to travel to Iran, even though my dad was, was born and raised there, and I had a right to travel there. Uh, as many of you know, it's a very difficult place to get to for Americans. But when I finally did have the opportunity to go, I was fascinated by the people, by the cultures, and by the ways in which we really didn't understand what life was like in that country. So I wanted to go there and tell Americans the stories of this incredible country. When we met, Jason was just a freelancer starting out in Iran. And I was a graduate student studying English literature and trying to figure out what I would like to do. Five years later, when we first got married, we were half the American print press corps in the country. And we took that responsibility very seriously. Well, unfortunately, now we're no longer to, to not only cover Iran from Iran, but to even visit our families there. So both of us have focused a lot of our, our attention and our work on the plight of other journalists in Iran, because unfortunately this is a problem that didn't end with our imprisonment. For the past decade or so, Iran constantly fell in the category of world worst jailers of journalists. According to our research at the Committee to Protect Journalists, at the end of 2022, Iran was the biggest jailer of journalists. We have documented the arrests of over 100 Iranian journalists at CPG. And believe it or not, half of them are women journalists. Iran, next to China, Myanmar, Belarus, and Turkey, falls in the category of world's jailers of the journalist, and the regime does everything it can shamelessly to suffocate press freedom and silence critical voices of journalists. This past few months after the death of Mahsa Amini in police custody, the regime arrested over 14,000 peaceful protesters and authorities have imprisoned many more journalists. Our research is by far not a correct number 
but we do our best. We believe at CPG that the real tally is much higher. Iran and countries like it use the detention and arrest, long-term imprisonment of journalists as a means of intimidation, to silence people. And as Yegi mentioned, there's a growing number of female journalists who've been arrested among the over 100 cases that she herself has documented. And this has all happened in the, in the outpouring of anger over the death in custody of a young woman named Masa Amini. Let's take a look. Images of her emerged in the hospital in a coma with bruises. They quickly went viral and provoked widespread anger. Women in Iran are chopping their hair and protesting on the streets after the death of Mahasa Amin. I would like to meet two of these very brave female Iranian journalists, Nilufar Hamedi and Elahe Mohammadi, two Iranian young journalists who both surprisingly write for the state-run media, and they were assigned by editors to go and break the story of Masa Amini's death. They have been sitting in prison for the last 240-something days. And just two days ago, they were moved from Iran's only female prison in the south of Tehran to Evin's notorious prison. That's where Jason and I were detained, and he spent 18 months. But I'm very happy to let you know that if you didn't check the news, they just won the UNESCO Press Freedom Award last night. It was announced last night and this morning, which is a very deserved award for them to win. We hope it brings more attention. <laughs> to their story and the story of other Iranian journalists who do not have a platform to let their voice be heard. And as we've mentioned, there have been arrests of many journalists in Iran including one of our dear friends, a photojournalist named Yalda Moyari. Yalda was actually the photographer uh, at our wedding. Uh, she's one of my oldest friends in Iran. She was arrested and spent several months for taking pictures of the protests that were happening in the, in the wake of Masa Amini's death. Uh, you see her here wearing the uniform of a street cleaner because part of her prison sentence was five years in prison, five years of not being allowed to practice journalism, two years of not being allowed to use telephones or social media, and three months as a street sweeper. Uh, she is a, a strong and very funny person, and she went out and took a, a, a video of herself sweeping the streets of Tehran and said, I will gladly keep my city clean as long as I'm not allowed to do the job that I love, which is journalism. It's not just journalists who are being detained and, and they're spending many months in prison. They're also being forced into exile. It's one of the great tragedies that the many journalists from Iran, 
China, Venezuela, Syria, Ukraine, Russia, so many other countries are being spit out by their own countries. And if they're lucky enough to land in a free society, the unfortunate reality is very few of them are able to continue to work in journalism. As an exiled journalist and also an immigrant, I would like to think it's easy for journalists to start their lives and their profession all over again in their new home. I like to think and believe that the US is embracing newcomers. But that's not always the case. And when it is, navigating the whole new life and a new profession under new circumstances, culturally and professionally, especially in the United States, getting a new full-time job is very, very difficult. Finding journalism work in a new country is almost impossible, especially if you come from a country like Iran, that you have language limitation, and there are not many Farsi language outlets available in exile for journalists. Western countries make it very difficult for new immigrants to get work authorization to establish their new life. Believe it or not, Jason and I went through the whole thing. Once he got out of prison and he was not really feeling well, he had to sit down and fill so many papers and forms so I could start my life all over again in my new country. All of these problems and difficulties led to journalists being silenced and contribute to their suffocation. That's what these regimes want. They would much rather see a journalist sent into exile driving an Uber than continue to do the critical reporting that they were born to do. And I want to say that our experience, while it was terrible, we just don't want anybody else to face the kind of struggles that Yegi and I did. We've been extremely lucky. The Post brought me back into the fold immediately. And I've been working here as, as, as soon as I was able to get back on my feet and, and out in the world again. I've been back on, on the job full time. And Yegi has committed herself to the work of Community Protect Journalists. But there are new cases every single day that aren't getting any of the kind of attention that we got and some of the other cases that we'll be talking about today are getting. So we feel a deep responsibility to keep telling these stories, to do it loudly, passionately, and with the support of the Washington Post and our Press Freedom Partnership. I would like to thank everyone at the Washington Post for their ongoing support of free press. And particularly, especially, my heartfelt gratitude to Fred Ryan for his leadership in protecting endangered journalists. It made a huge difference in our lives. Thank you, Thank you very much. We really appreciate you listening to us. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Deed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Our next guest is Paul Beckett, who is the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief here in Washington. Paul, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Post Francis. Live. Lovely to be here. Paul, it's been five weeks since Evan was 
uh, detained in Russia. What can you tell us about his condition? He's in Lefortovo prison, which is a uh, security services prison in the middle of Moscow. Uh, he was by himself for the first few weeks. We understand he may have now have a cellmate. Uh, but one of the difficult things about his whole situation is how little we actually know. Uh, he's only received one uh, consular visit, as far as we understand. Uh, the US Embassy in Moscow had asked for another one on May 11th, and that was rejected. So the opacity around this is one of the many, many troubling aspects of it. He's getting, he's got at least one letter out, or maybe more than one letter. What are we learning about his spirits from that? Uh, Evan is a uh, very resilient, uh, very uh, um, dedicated, very smart young man. So I'm sure he's in there making the most of it. He's talking about reading. He's talking about writing. Uh, but we only have the pictures that we see in his court appearance, for instance, to see that he's in, uh, seems to be in decent health. The Wall Street Journal lawyers who have visited him uh, say that his spirits seem to be good. Uh, so we're just hoping and praying that that's how it stays. There's a remarkable line in one of those letters, a letter he sent to his parents, where his humor comes out. T tell me about that, because he almost seems to be comforting his mother in that missive. Very much a younger brother, I think. <laughs> uh, and uh, you saw that. The one letter he got out, he said uh, uh, rather cheekily, but reassuringly to his mother that um, her breakfast had prepared him for Russian prison food. Uh, and you see his, his sense of humor comes through a lot. And he's a very, very humble uh, young man. He went to Russia. His parents, as you know, I think, were uh, Soviet Jewish emigres to this country. So his heritage was fascinating to him. He spoke the language, speaks the language extremely well. And he was drawn back to Russia as a journalistic duty, really, to report on a country that was part of him but needs a lot of explanation to an international audience. So uh, when he went back to Russia, you know, he went and he went to see Russian punk bands and he played on a Russian soccer team and he just threw himself into life there in a way that you really would want a foreign correspondent to. Uh, and so I think uh, it meant a huge amount of to him to be in Russia. Uh, and sadly, this is how it's wound up. And we hear that, and then there's that iconic now picture of him in a glass cage. I know how I reacted to that, but tell me about your reaction when you saw your reporter standing there. Uh, well, I'd say from the, from the get-go, we suffered a pretty uh, serious body blow from his detention. So that was just the latest in a string of uh, unfortunate events for us that has been uh, tough on the journal and tough on all of us. Uh, when we saw him there, I th I, he looked resolute and we've had access to him from Wall Street Journal lawyers who have confirmed that. And I think one of the advantages he will have uh, in his situation is that his Russian is so good, he, he knows what's going on. He can understand what's going on. He doesn't need to look around at his translators to make sure that it's all coming through or to him. Or even wonder or whether his translators are actually telling him. If they're telling actually telling him. the truth, yeah. Truth. So I think he can have conversations that 
we don't understand. <laughs> but uh, so I think he seemed to us that seemed that given the circumstances, he was as in control of the situation as he could be in the circumstances. So tell me a little bit more about how his heritage has played into his desire to go to Russia to start with and his ability to cope now. If you look at some of the videos that were on that extended, you know, the longer version of the video you showed earlier, uh, they celebrated Russian holidays. He signed his letter to his mother, Vanya. You know, I mean, this, you know, he was, obviously he was born in America, grew up in America. His parents are now in Philadelphia. But um, it's obviously been part of his upbringing in a way that makes him uniquely qualified. And when he went to Russia, uh, he's part of a small band of amazing young reporters that we're all getting to know now because they were such good friends of his and he has a huge support network in there but there's a group and he was a central part of it of young reporters trying to do incredibly brave work in Russia under the toughest of circumstances both for foreign news organizations and for the you know dwindling band of independent uh, journalistic outlets in Russia extraordinarily brave young people so if you could pick one story that Evan wrote that sort of highlights, that tells you who Evan is as a reporter, as a dedicated person to tell the story of Russia, which story would that be? I think it was the return of Russian soldiers from Ukraine to Russia. Tell us more about it. So that's one that you think, well, okay, this is a situation where it's the bad Russians and the good Ukrainians, etc. So, you know, we know the contours of that. But he went, he said, look, there's there's casualties coming back to Russia. Any casualty is a terrible casualty, and any casualty has a terrible impact on the people who those corpses are returned to. And he went out and found those people and said, this is what it looks like when you bring people uh, back from the front. So he humanized this whole war. Very, very humanizing reporter. I mean, he writes very well about the economy. We are the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> but uh, he did a very, very good job of bringing Russia to life from the ground up. You know, we've, I've been a foreign correspondent for much of my career. And you, there's some foreign correspondents who operate in embassy circles and diplomatic circles and government circles. Mm -hmm. And there are some who operate on the ground, and he's very, very much an on-the-ground reporter, perfectly comfortable in those other circumstances, but uh, really brought the country alive by being out there. So let's talk about this process. He, 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 there's a war going on. He's there. Why do you think Russia perceived him or accused him of being a threat? To be honest, I think there, but for the grace of God, goes everybody else. I don't think this was particularly about Evan. He was an accredited journalist. I uh, registered with the foreign ministry. Yeah, there was, they knew he was a journalist. They knew he is a journalist. Uh, I think they saw a target of opportunity and they took it. And the uh, hostage taking as a business for Russia and other countries, as I'm sure we'll hear a huge amount about today, uh, is a growth industry. So um, I think that was it, to give Russia leverage in whatever games it's trying to play. So I want to ask you quickly, what leverage does the Biden administration have, firstly? And secondly, are you getting the support you need from other organizations to help bring Evan back? The government has been here has been very uh, uh, welcoming to our entreaties. 
They've been reassuring that a lot has been done. Uh, we look forward to seeing what is being done, what can be done, and we look forward to seeing him brought home. Uh, the, on terms of other organizations, uh, this is new terrain for us, and there is a small but growing group of people that know this landscape. Uh, and they have been incredibly helpful, as have other uh, outlets in the broader journalistic community. And I will, you know, the first responder for us was the National Press Club. They were extremely quick, extremely helpful. Uh, and from there, we got to uh, the Washington Post. Uh, and I'm not saying that because I'm sitting here. Uh, really, very quickly, uh, Fred Ryan, Jason, Marty Barron had really great advice. That was within 24 hours of us knowing it happened. And uh, that's helped guide us ever since. But the outpouring, broadly speaking, from people who three, you know, who at every other time are fierce competitors has been genuinely moving for us. And we really appreciate it. Paul, thank you very much. I know you have gained expertise that now you may have to share with other people. And we appreciate you making Evan such a wonderful presence in this room today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And stay with us. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> stay with us. My colleague, Alahi Azadi, will be back with a group of journalists. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Alahi Azadi. I am co-host of Post Reports, as well as a media reporter here at the Washington Post. And our panelists this morning, I'm so honored to be joined by them because they are proof of the price that is sometimes that sometimes needs to be paid for telling the truth. And that price can include censorship, assault, arrest, and imprisonment. So please join me in welcoming today Hanna Lubakova, who is a freelance journalist and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Also joining us, Edifemit. Edifemi, excuse me, Edifemi Akansanya. She's an international correspondent for Arise News in Nigeria and is currently a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Thanks, Femi, for joining us. And also joining us next to her is Danny Fenster. He's the editor of, at large of Frontier Myanmar and also a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. And finally, last but not least, we have Clayton Weimers. He is the executive director of the US Bureau of Reporters Without Borders. So thank you all for being here this morning, speaking about this issue, and also for being willing to share your own stories of what, what you all went through and the insights that you now have as a result. So Hannah, I want to start with you. <laughs> you are a Belarusian journalist working and living in exile in Lithuania. Your government considered you a threat. There is a warrant out for your arrest. Now, I feel like many people would be too intimidated to continue working given that. Can you speak to what has kept you committed to still covering repression in Belarus? Thank you very much. I'll start uh, not with my story, but with the story of uh, Roman Protasevich. I find it both uh, cynical and very symbolic that uh, he was sentenced to eight years today, a few hours ago, mm. on the International Freedom Day. And many of you might remember this case of a, of a civilian plane uh, that was forced down by the regime in Minsk, and Roman was on that plane. But Roman is only one of the very many cases of journalists who were arrested, who were repressed. One of them is another case, uh, an example of Katerina Andreeva. Sure. Uh, she, she's here, her face is here on my, my t-shirt. She was also sentenced to eight years for high treason. 
And you see uh, the repression in Belarus, I want you to look at that as a process. So at first, uh, when we were still in Minsk, when we were covering the massive, unprecedented protest movement, uh, with hundreds of thousands of people protesting on, uh, outside against the dictator Lukashenko, the regime attacked us. We were beaten, we were even shot with rubber bullets. Mm. Next, uh, the regime targeted us with arrests. So hundreds of cases of detentions of journalists in literally weeks and months. And the third stage, uh, it was actually back then I was uh, really scared of wearing my press vest mm. because in that case I would become a target. So I preferred not to wear it. And usually that's a way to protect yourself. But in this case, it made you a target. Exactly. Mm. And then the regime attacked institutions. So now we have all major newsrooms that had to relocate. So in Belarus, you wouldn't be able to read like any national outlet because they're banned. So imagine like you wouldn't be able to read the Washington Post or any other outlets here because uh, the regime would censor them. And uh, despite the international outcry, despite sanctions, the regime feel, feels emboldened and that was not enough. And that's why today's sentence. But what keeps me going I think is exactly this, the case of my friend in jail, the case of many other journalists who are in jail. Another friend of mine, Ihar Osik, from Radio for Europe, was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Mm. And in jail, he is tortured, he's isolated from information, he attempted suicide twice mm. to protest against these um, uh, conditions in jail. Another really important uh, a reason is also what I mentioned, this censorship, because we want to reach those people inside the country. And that became a real challenge because of, because of this propaganda censorship and so on. We have more than 3,000 websites, web pages banned by the regime. So imagine the scale. And this is really important, especially because of the full scale invasion of Ukraine, which the regime in Belarus is part of, a co-aggressor. Mm -hmm. And we want to reach people and explain yeah. to them that this is uh, what is happening. Yeah. And I definitely want to get back to that as well and learn more about how what's happening in Ukraine is affecting journalists in the entire region. Uh, Femi, if I can turn to you now in hearing this story. Also, you were in Nigeria. We saw this unfold right now. You were live reporting on air. You were covering the anniversary of protests and demonstrations against police brutality. And at those protests, at least 11 people died, dozens were injured. You were covering the anniversary of this when police assaulted you live on air. When we saw that, what was going through your mind in that moment? You're a journalist on the job and the police are attacking you. I think naturally the defense mechanisms kicked in. I was defending myself and my person. I was defending the members of my team. Mm. I was defending our equipment. But I think inadvertently, I was also defending free press. Mm. And what we didn't realize in the moment was that that attack was so much more than us. It meant so much more than just the few of us who were at the toll gate that day. So I think in the moment, that's what it was, naturally defending what should be free. People doing their jobs, people sharing information, and people being safe while they do so. Mm. And doing that under the prism or under the umbrella of a free press is what we tried to continue defending on the street that day. But when it 
settled down and the adrenaline came down and after we returned to the newsrooms, I think that's when it really did hit that, my goodness, it's more than statistics. You can absolutely know that Nigeria has this press freedom issue. You can know that Nigeria remains one of the most dangerous places in West Africa to be a journalist. But sometimes those numbers and those words, they just feel like that. They right. feel so distant until you find yourself very much in the crosshairs. So I think that's what it was, a natural defense mechanism, but also understanding that this press freedom issue is more than just two words. Right. It's definitely right. a lifetime struggle. Yeah, that's such an important point that an attack on an individual journalist is often more than just an attack on an individual journalist. Um, turning to Danny, you were in Myanmar. You were covering and investigating and looking into the country's military government. And for that, you received an 11-year prison sentence you spent 176 days in prison. What message do you think they were trying to send by giving you that sentence and imprisoning you? Well, I mean, I think they had, um, be because the media internationally was covering the case, um, they had, I think, found that they could make, they could send a, a statement to, to international journalists that, you know, don't come here, don't pay attention to this. Um, they had been sending that message domestically much more forcefully, um, you know, the, the journalists, the local journalists there got that message pretty quickly and are still still reporting anyway. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> I think um, it was it was somewhat unlucky that I was, you know, the, I, I stayed as long as I could because I thought I was under the radar. Mm. Um, but when I was detained, I think that they had exhausted their their sort of domestic capacity for, well, they haven't exhausted it, but they, they needed to send a message even stronger to the international community, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just kind of where I was at the time. Yeah, yeah. So in Backstage Clayton, we were all, you know, as the new Press Freedom Index, which was just released this morning, was flashing on the screen, all of us were trying to find these countries and where they stood on the rankings. As you're hearing these stories these, and these experiences, how do they illustrate the index and what and what also reporters without borders ha have found the state of press freedom to be this past year sure the the state of press freedom around the world seems to be getting increasingly volatile volatile and that's what our index is reporting on this year especially uh, we're seeing unprecedented shifts in which countries rank where on the index and that's a reflection of changing political sands mm. in a variety of countries it's also a reflection of the uh, changing face of the technology that's impacting our media and how the technology is really outpacing the regulation and so authoritarian regimes that are able to uh, harness the powers of technology of ai generated fake content and uh, m image manipulation are able to use that to further obscure the truth and it's just getting harder and harder for the general public to access the truth. It's getting harder and harder to determine truth from uh, fiction online, uh, in the media. And it's also just getting harder for journalists to do their job. It is unsafe in many places right now. Uh, we counted the highest number of journalists detained and arrested in 2022 since we started counting at RSF. Wow. I think we just need to underscore that, that statistic that in 2022 we have the highest number that since you've been tracking for many years, right? Yes, and 2022 was a, a 
like I said, an especially volatile year coming out of the pandemic, a lot of reporters going back into the field, int introducing danger back into the work. But also this we talk a lot about this idea of impunity. Mm. And when state actors are allowed to get away with this bad behavior, when, you know, the Saudi regime uh, can assassinate a Washington Post columnist in the Turkish embassy, in the Turkish consulate, sorry, when the Russian regime, regime can imprison a Wall Street Journal reporter groundlessly, uh, when the Syrian regime can hold a reporter for over 10 years and not release him. Mm. It contributes to this environment of impunity that encourages other bad actors to say, you know, we can get away with these things too. And yeah. so we need to hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah, on that point, Femi, I'm wondering if we can speak briefly about Nigeria here. Your colleagues in Nigeria, they continue to be attacked. They've been uh, targeted by police, even though they've been, you know, had these arrests and encounters with police before, and they continue to report. I wonder, what is the impact of all of this on young and upcoming journalists? Because we're talking about the impunity, but I'm also thinking about journalists in these countries who want to enter the field and have a passion for this field. It's twofold. On the one hand, it opens people's eyes to this wonderful profession that we all partake in. But unfortunately, what we do see is the negative side of it. Now, younger journalists, journalists who are looking at the occupation, perhaps deciding not to enter mm. because they feel as though the risks are too high. And they aren't mistaken for feeling that way because constantly journalists continue to be persecuted. Journalists will be and have been disappeared in Nigeria and journalists continue to be attacked. My colleague, Okweyemi Adenu, who we saw in that video clip, was covering the general elections in February this year and he was assaulted by police again, beaten mercilessly, taken into detention, and he was kept for several hours before a senior member of the Arise News team was able to release him. And that just underscores the continuing effort there is against the free press in Nigeria. And naturally, you are going to dissuade people from joining that profession. And that shouldn't be the case because there's so much greatness happening on the African continent, mm. happening in Nigeria that deserves uh, a free press to continue to broadcast those types of stories. So what we are trying to do is persevere in the face of this persecution. Mm. When we were attacked on camera, that was right at the beginning of our day. We snapped straight into action. We continued reporting and we stayed at the toll gate for hours, then returned to our newsroom. At no point did any member of the team say, this is too much, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think that that's how you continue to fight against and push back. We can only hope that what we are pushing back against diminishes and hopefully disappears. Mm -hmm. But that's not the reality. If anything, things are getting worse. And that is despite the fact that Nigeria's rankings and numbers have improved. Mm. This year, Nigeria is now ranked 123 out of 180 countries. That's up six places from last year. That is remarkable. That is welcomed because if it were the other way, we wouldn't be happy about it. So we have to accept that there is definitely improvement. But on the ground, as we saw with the picture of my colleague, yeah. the reality is still stark and still needs a lot of improvement. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's definitely one thing to think about, you know, those of us in the United States wanting to hear these stories in all these countries, but then the impact on local journalists and those communities needing to hear what is actually happening in their countries. And Danny, I, I wanted to turn to you because you briefly mentioned, you touched on the, your local colleagues, those mm. still in Myanmar, still trying to do their work. And I'm wondering if you could speak to 
how your treatment you feel like may have differed or compared as an American journalist being an international correspondent in Myanmar to those of your local colleagues there and what they're facing? Uh, well, I mean, I could give you a, a, what I think is a pretty powerful anecdote. Mm -hmm. um, so my team had relocated across the border to Thailand while I was in prison. I, at the time, wasn't aware that that was happening. But before I had left, we were talking about, are we going to have to do this? It was still, we're, we're waiting to see how things would unfold. Um, after I got out of prison, there was a third wave of COVID that swept through uh, Myanmar while I was in prison. Uh, and it was just somehow Myanmar had sort of weathered the previous waves pretty somewhat well. Mm. Um, the third wave was just devastating. One of our reporters uh, got word that a relative was possibly fatally ill. And so they decided they did a lot of research and thought it was all right to travel back to Yangon uh, to visit this relative to either help or to say goodbye. Uh, they were detained um, on their arrival. I had just gotten out of prison. Um, I wasn't tortured or beaten. I mean, I was held in prison, but I wasn't tortured or beaten. He sort of disappeared. It took a while for us to, to reestablish contact with him. Um, and he was in Myanmar, and he wasn't really talking or telling us what had happened. Eventually, he made his way back out of the country. He landed in Thailand with his wife and child, and then traveled back to where the newsroom is. And slowly, he started telling us what had happened. Um, and I mean, he wrote really movingly about it several months later. I won't share too many graphic details, but he was basically beaten and raped. Um, and uh, then he wrote, he decided he wanted to write very explicitly about everything that had happened. Uh, and he said at the end of this, this essay, which we published at Frontier Myanmar, um, that he knows that a lot of people are experiencing this and aren't talking about it mm. because there's stigmas involved in it. Um, but the Myanmar military constantly uses sexual assault and sexual violence as a tactic. And this has only made it more important for him to speak out about it and to, to tell the truth to the world. It's, it's an interesting thing because we write in, it's, it's local journalists telling their story in English, targeting an international audience. Mm. And that was really important to him and it's really important to us. But, you know, there's also a whole Myanmar, Burmese language media ecosystem as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's and, all of these reporters, it's really important for them to keep telling these stories. And how are they faring, the, the ones that are uh, writing and, and speaking to the local Myanmar population? I mean, so they're not doing it openly within the borders of the country. Um, there's newsrooms whose output is thriving. They're doing incredible reporting. Um, but it's newsrooms that are in foreign countries right. where most of the reporters don't speak the local language. They feel extremely isolated. They're not all with their families. Uh, they're thinking about their families back home. I mean, nobody's using bylines, but everybody's still pretty terrified that, you know, the regime knows who they are and is, you know, possibly targeting their families. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. We were talking backstage as well of, of this idea of journalists in exile and sort of clustered and hubbed. And um, Hana, as someone who is based in Lithuania and still writing and thinking about um, Belarus, um, I, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, Russia right now, this conflict, this war in Ukraine. And I know in the Atlantic Council uh, work that you've done, you've explored this alliance. 
including you know, the, Russia using bases in Belarus to launch attacks on Ukraine, that there's this alliance and the implications it has on that conflict. I'm wondering, what are the implications of this alliance between these two countries on press freedom in Belarus? Um, I think, well, first of all, when it comes to propaganda, um, before the full-scale invasion, the, uh, there was a lot of propaganda in Belarus, let's be clear. But that was like pro-Lukashenko, pro-government, pro-state propaganda. Now, what the regime does and what state propaganda does, they absolutely copy those messages, narratives from the Kremlin. And they sell it, they feed it, uh, our audiences in Belarus, and this is very dangerous. At this point, the like the majority, most of Belarusians are against the war, are against the shelling of Ukraine from the territory of Belarus, and are against the deployment of Belarusian troops to Ukraine. So we are winning here, but I wouldn't be very optimistic in the long term because of that uh, bans, because of that censorship that I mentioned. And another, I think, really important um, impact is, of course, again, repression. I am on the wanted list, the intergovernmental uh, wanted list, so I cannot travel to some at least 15 countries. Mm. And I was um, outside the EU, those uh, CIS countries. And I was arrested actually once uh, in one country outside the EU. Luckily, I was out. But then it became clear that both Minsk and Moscow want me, mm. right? So, so it's not just the one country, and now it's expanded to this much larger so yeah. this is creeping annexation in so many ways mm -hmm. and also this affects a lot press freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned um, the propaganda and Clayton, you were talking about disinformation, AI generated content. You know, in this past year, have you noticed in your work at RSF um, that, you know, we, there's been a lot of attention on the war in Ukraine and how Russia propaganda machine works. Are other countries copying this, or what, what is the trend globally? Is this, is this something that's happening in a lot of repressive countries right now? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, all of this is very new, and it, it seems like every day we're seeing new examples of the way that states can use these emerging technologies in order to confuse the information space. Um, the bottom line is, though, that these states are not necessarily always trying to you know, make you believe in untruth or something that isn't true, just muddying the waters is often enough for state propaganda. So the point is not to make you believe something that's not true. The point is to make you believe nothing at all. Mm. And that in many ways is one of the one of authoritarian regimes most powerful tools against journalists and journalism is that it, it dilutes their power it dilutes their message it dilutes the truth overall and it just makes it so much harder for anyone who's trying to understand the world to really know what's going on mm -hmm. yeah like poisoning the well exactly. but nothing is trustworthy and i feel like that probably also makes it easier to attack journalists and you know the phrase enemy of the people i mean it has implication different implications around the world Sure, and I don't think it's any coincidence that at this time when it's being harder to tell fact from fiction that we also see all-time lows by every metric in trust in the media. Um, it's because the, the general public is finding it harder and harder to know who they can believe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Femi, I'm wondering in Nigeria, the impact that's on journalists there, the repression there, and what they're up against. You know, we talked about what that means for up-and-coming journalists. I'm wondering what that means for democracy in Nigeria. Is democracy backsliding as a result? What's the connection? I think, firstly, when we look at the connection between uh, democracy and press freedom, I think it's clear that the healthier a country's democracy is, 
naturally their press freedom should be quite healthy. Mm -hmm. And though Nigeria's press freedom numbers on a general scale aren't great, there has been a slight improvement. What we have done is now come out of a general election cycle where the country went to the polls to vote in a new president, uh, new state, uh, state representatives, governors, and the like. And there have been allegations of electoral misconduct, electoral fraud, uh, discrepancies in figures. And whichever side of the political line any person in Nigeria falls upon, it does beg the question of whether or not they are aware of the tie between a democracy and press freedom. Mm. Democracy in Nigeria is not the healthiest. If we look across the African continent, countries like Malawi, far smaller, but have a strong sense of democracy, a healthier democracy. And there are many countries on the continent that seek to learn things from Malawi. Nigeria in itself is developing at an astounding pace. It is the most populous country on the continent. It continues to boost through certain constraints. So I do want to make clear that all is not lost and all is not terrible in Nigeria. Right. And there's definitely a lot that needs to happen. But I think if we focus on improving the quality of our democracy, Nigeria will, will hopefully become a safer place for journalists to not only exist, but indeed thrive because the relationship between a democracy and its press and press freedom is inextricable. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing this worsening of press freedom in recent years, of course, there's been an improvement this year, um, and link it to the worsening state of democracy. But we have just come out of an election cycle on the whole. Uh, the same political party has been returned to power. And we can look at these next four years as a marker of this difference, if any, right. when it comes to the quality of democracy, and then use that as a lens to look at how press freedom is improving. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see a situation in which many Nigerians in Nigeria feel proud of their, demo their democracy and their democratic representative and their democratic responsibility. Often, not just in the global south, but indeed in America, impoverished people tend not to vote. Impoverished people tend not to use their political power in the way that they should. Mm. And that's starting to change in Nigeria. So it's an absolutely important time to look at the country and look at the state of its democracy and see how that improves lots of different metrics of development, not only in Nigeria, but indeed across the continent. So it is definitely a time of optimism, but um, you can't have too much optimism <laughs> because you have to be realistic in the country that you are, the risks that everybody yeah. faces, but definitely yeah. the risks journalism faces. Yeah, I do. I will eventually ask you all about what gives you hope. So prepare yourselves for, for a dose of optimism. Um, and it's almost like what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say in some ways is the state of press freedom in a country is almost like a canary in the coal mine, a metric by which we can measure how healthy the democracy there is and, and how free a society is. Um, Danny, on that on that note, you know, you in, in since you've been released, you've you've discussed how your brother and your family worked with the U.S. government and U.S. nonprofits um, to help secure your release, and I think this can sort of speak to uh, the role that people outside of these countries could potentially pe play in protecting and securing press freedom in, abroad. Um, so I'm wondering your perspective on what individuals here can do mm. to advocate for the more than 500 journalists currently imprisoned around the world. Yeah, well, it's hard to, 
I think it might be hard to draw universals because I think mm. each regime might act differently. Um, but I, some trends are emerging, I guess. And just to clarify on my first answer, um, that they were using international coverage to send a message. I don't want to paint a picture where I don't think that the press should have the press should not have covered it any differently. I'm, I think because they knew the world was watching, I wasn't subjected to different treat to mm -hmm. worse treatment, um, and it was instrumental in getting me out. Uh, so what people can do, I mean, just constantly raising the voice, uh, constantly talking about it, keeping it in the news. Um, what it does beyond however the regime is going to react, I think it brings in more players to get involved. So my family uh, had reached out to the State Department or the State Department reached out to them. But because it was such a big story, many other actors came in. Uh, and in my case, it was sort of there were people in the government and the State Department working on it. There were people in NGOs. There were private citizens that all had different channels mm -hmm. because Myanmar, the military, there is such a opaque and sort of uh, black box of regime that there's not a lot of contacts. It was really important to get all these sources drawn into it. So if people can raise, raise their voices about you know, individual cases, they can attract more actors into each, yeah, yeah, yeah. each negotiation. Yeah, and, and that's also the case for, you know, and all around the world, it, like you're wearing a t-shirt showing your, can you say your friend's name again? Katerina, so? Katerina Andreeva. Who just, who has an eight year prison sentence and bringing attention to all of these individual cases is so important. Um, Hannah, you have stayed in contact, I believe, with a number of journalists who are still living in Belarus, yes? Um, are there, how are they able to work around government censorship and get their reporting out in front of, in front of people? So they have to work a lot anonymously, and despite the regime destroyed institutions, there are still people on the ground, and we have, mm, I cannot say many, but we have uh, journalists who, who are still there. They have to hide, they have to report anonymously, but they, their mere presence there is so important because mm. they send us information. What is also important are people. We have a lot of citizens who just send us information from the ground. Wow. One initiative uh, was able to follow, monitor missile launches and the movement of the, of the Russian troops in Belarus for months. And there were 30,000 people who sent us this information. Wow. Despite they were arrested, despite they were sentenced to years in jail. So you would, you would ask us about, you will ask us about hope. I think this is one of the reasons, one of the things that give me a lot of hope. So this perseverance, like this persistent resilience of journalism still inside the country and those people who give us a lot of information from, from the inside. Yeah. Actually, thank you for giving your hopeful answer because we have a few, just a few minutes left and that's where I want to end us on. Um, and, and the fact that we have so many people in Belarus who are willing to risk, just regular people willing to, willing to risk so much to send that information, I think is hopeful. Femi, is there anything you want to say that leaves you hopeful? And then we'll go to Danny and, and Clayton. Life gives me hope, a lot of it. And I think that the alternative to being hopeful is too, too dear a price to pay. Mm. So even when you're confronted with the negative aspects of this work that we do as journalists, the fact that we continue to persevere is hopeful to me. 
And I can't imagine not being hopeful because it is the hope that propels us to continue to do this work, whether it's in defense of a colleague, whether they're our own or a colleague in the profession at large. There is also hope in making sure that they are returned to their work so that they continue doing it. So the entire vehicle of being a journalist and protecting a press freedom, protecting journalism, gives me a lot of hope. The alternative to not do this work, yeah. to not be a journalist, is just too dear a price to pay. Mm. Hmm. Danny, what's leaving you hopeful right now about press freedom? Well, um, hopeful, hope and optimism are two different things. But what I'm hopeful about, um, the reason any of us go into this, I think, uh, is that sort of sharing stories across borders sort of connects publics together. So whatever um, governments are doing, uh, what makes me hopeful is that these are obviously universal principles. Publics and reporters everywhere want accountable governments. They want to be able to share and tell stories. They want to connect with people at, in their own countries abroad. Um, the reporter that I mentioned earlier, whose name is Yeman, um, writing his story and coming out of the experience, sort of feeling even that it's even more important to write these stories. Um, that's I sort of I'd leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Clayton, in the last minute here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, yeah. which we have to always remember. It's important know. to remember. Um, you know, we make progress all the time at the international level. You know, we focus on the countries at the bottom of the index. But if you look at the countries at the top of the index, they're doing all sorts of innovative things to improve press freedom um, and the right to information for everybody. Um, I, so I encourage everyone to go to rsf.org and take a look at the rankings and the report. Um, but we also make progress at the individual level. Uh, two journalists were just released by the Egyptian authorities this week. Four were released in Yemen last week. And one day, Austin Tice and Evan Gershkovich are going to come home to us. Yeah. Well, and sorry if I could say one more thing. Yes, I'm also course. always inspired when I'm around journalists exactly. here who are relentlessly pursuing the truth and who know firsthand what the cost can be. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was going to say that's what's leaving me hopeful, hearing all the courage and the commitment here. We'll have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I would love to thank Adifema Ekansanya, Danny Fenster, Hannah Lubakoff, and Clayton Weimers. Thank you all so much for being here. Please give them a round of applause. <laughs> And next up, my colleague David Ignatius will be speaking with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken after this short video, so please stay with us. The only thing better than having the Secretary of State on the screen is having the Secretary of State in, per in person. We're very happy that Secretary of State Blinken could join us today to celebrate, commemorate World Press Freedom Day. In our business, we like to cover the story. We worry that we're becoming the story. Uh, we've had 67 journalists and media workers who were killed last year. We have about 570 who are in prison around the world in 30 different countries. We have a problem. And I want to ask you about the case that we're focused on most immediately right now, which is that of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Grishkovich. Uh, tell us about the efforts the State Department has made to get Evan free. And in particular, I'm curious whether you've uh, been able to talk Excuse us, we can't use this day without calling for the freedom of Julian Assange. The Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy, guys. Not one word about Shereen Abu Akhli, who was murdered by the Israeli So, 
we're we're here to celebrate freedom of expression, and we just experienced it. Let me let me continue, uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, to to ask you about Ev Evan Gershkovich and your efforts to get him free. Well, first, David, it's uh, it's very good to be here to be with you. Uh, this is. Um, an important day, uh, it's, a, it's a somber day uh, for the reasons that my alter ego cited just uh, a few minutes ago. We know that journalists around the world are increasingly uh, under siege, and under siege in a whole variety of ways. Um, that's now manifested itself once again very powerfully in uh, Evans' de detention and incarceration in Moscow. Um, profoundly, unjustly, um, for doing his job. We're intensely engaged with uh, the Russians to seek, his, uh, to seek his freedom, to seek his immediate release. Short of that, just to get what Russia's obligated to provide, which is consular access, which they've done once but have uh, yet to repeat. Uh, our ambassador, Lynn Tracy, had a chance to be with Evan about uh, 10 days ago, found him of incredibly uh, strong of, of mind and spirit, um, which is uh, a very powerful thing in this, in this situation. But uh, we have a country, in the case of, uh, of Russia, that, like a handful of other countries around the world, is wrongfully detaining people, using them as political pawns, using them as leverage, uh, in a, a practice that uh, is absolutely unacceptable, and that uh, we're working both broadly to, um, to try to deter, but also, at the same time, to try to secure the release of those who are being unjustly detained. And let me ask you, Mr. Secretary, whether you talk directly to your Russian counterpart, uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov about this? Uh, I have. I spoke to uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, shortly after Evan was detained. Uh, I haven't spoken to him since. Uh, I made uh, clear the imperative of releasing Evan. I made clear the imperative of getting consular access. We did get consular access after that. We have uh, a channel that President Biden and uh, President Putin established some time ago to try to work on these, uh, these cases. Um, so we're engaged. I wish I could say that in this moment, uh, there was a clear way forward. I, we don't have that in this moment, but it's something that we're working every single day. You've done something unusual in these cases, which is to impose the Levinson Act and declare the FSB, the, the Russian secret police, uh, as a target of your sanctions mm -hmm. because of wrongful detention. Tell us about that, uh, whether that was a difficult choice to make, and what specific leverage that's going to give you in getting freedom for Evan. Look, the Levinson Act is an important tool. It gives us different and, and new authorities uh, to try to go at those who are directly engaged in wrongfully detaining journalists or wrongfully detaining our citizens. It includes things like uh, travel bans, like asset freezes. Um, and look, I think it's, it's, it's clear that in, in some cases, the individuals who are sanctioned may not be planning to travel to the United States anyway. We have to acknowledge that or may not have assets here. But our hope is that by applying it, we can have a chilling effect on those who would engage in these practices going forward. There's something else, though, that's going on. For a country like Russia that has already severely isolated itself by its aggression against Ukraine, these acts only further its isolation. Increasingly, the message is, don't come here. Don't travel here. Whoever you are, you risk being pulled off the street and thrown in jail. And that is only going to deepen Russia's isolation. As we speak, to my knowledge, there are no reporters of American nationality in Russia. Uh, there are about 20 Russians who are formally accredited here with state media uh, organizations. Uh, but 
if this is applied uh, across the board uh, and you see more and more countries and the nationals of more and more countries saying, I'm not going there, that is simply going to further detach Russia from the world. And that is profoundly not in Russia's interest. As someone, someone has personally been sanctioned by Russia, this has meaning for me. I'm going to ask you about another Washington Post colleague, and that is our contributor, mm-hmm. Vladimir Kromertsa. He is not a U.S. citizen, but his, his wife is. He's been a, pr- a permanent resident yeah. in Washington. His two children, his children are, are citizens. Why isn't he included in your declarations about wrongful detention, which would have some force in, in relieving the 25-year, the harsh, harsh sentence that was just imposed on him? So first, we deplore what is being done to him. Um, second, when it comes to determinations of, of wrongful detention, uh, it's a process. And there are clear criteria, uh, but it's also true that these cases evolve. And as we learn more, as we fully understand the circumstances, the details, as we are able to look at how people similarly situated are being treated, uh, that all of that goes into a determination of wrongful detention. So these, uh, these determinations are not typically made immediately. There is uh, a process and criteria that we apply, and that does not um, in any way prejudge what we might do coming up as we continue to look at that case and others. So just because it's important, mm-hmm. obviously, to his family and to those of us here at The Post, I understand you to be saying that the State Department is still examining whether you might That's declare him as wrong, that is wrongfully correct. detained. That is and correct. when do you think you might make that decision? I don't want to put a time frame on it. Again, it's something that we're looking at uh, constantly. Dave, the other thing I'd say is this, um, because I think it's important. Um, we're trying to fight back and push back around the world to help Uh, journalists who, in one way or another, are are facing intimidation, uh, coercion, uh, persecution, prosecution, surveillance. We have a fund, uh, a technology fund, to try to get technology in the hands of journalists and other civil society uh, advocates to make sure that they can continue, even in a surveillance state, to communicate with each other and to be connected to the outside world. Um, We have a defamation fund, because increasingly what we're seeing in country after country is the use of lawfare. Uh, trying to um, put journalists and put media enterprises out of business uh, by litigation. We now have a defamation fund that journalists and independent media can tap into to help defend themselves. We have a program to try to help journalists protect themselves physically or in cyberspace from intimidation uh, and uh, coercion by states. Um, We contribute uh, tens of millions of dollars into a media freedom fund uh, for independent media to bolster their capacity to continue doing business even in very difficult places. And we're part of a media uh, freedom coalition, about 52 countries, pooling resources, pooling information, sharing expertise uh, and knowledge with journalists and independent media enterprises around the world. So it's not just a matter of putting a spotlight on this, as we do every day. It's not just a matter of engaging country after country where journalists uh, are being, in one way or another, Uh, mistreated. We're actually trying to get tools in the hands of of journalists and independent media so that they can push back, so that they can sustain what they're doing. We're grateful, obviously, for the support of of all countries in the United Nations, the United States uh, leading among them in in recognizing World Press Freedom Day and taking this issue seriously, as Secretary General Guterres did in his comments this week. I want to ask you uh, briefly about another Washington Post colleague. I I wish this list was shorter. And that's Austin Tice, who was a contributor to The Washington Post, who's been missing uh, in, in Syria now for, for many years. His mother 
uh, Deborah told CBS News this week that she wants to see the same urgency and commitment uh, that she hears from top levels trickle down to the State Department throughout the administration. Uh, and and the, the assurances that have been given that her son will someday be free, be realized. What would be your response to, to, to Deborah Tice, Austin's mother? Well, first, David, I've had the opportunity to meet with Deborah Tice uh, on a couple of occasions. Um, I can't begin to tell you my admiration for her, um, the extraordinary courage uh, that she and the family have shown, the resilience that they've shown. I can't begin to put myself in, in her shoes almost 11 years now that Austin has been taken and separated from her, from uh, his family, from his friends. And uh, her uh, absolute determination, relentless determination to do everything in her power to push for his freedom is beyond admirable. So I'm uh, really, um, I think humility in the, in the face of that is uh, what really comes to mind. And I know when you're in the shoes of someone like, uh, like Deborah Tice, and unfortunately we have 60 or so American families who have their loved ones wrongfully detained somewhere around the world. I've met with virtually or in person with every single one of them. Um, it's incredibly frustrating um, because you, you want to see something happening every single day. And often we're engaged in efforts to get people home that we can't talk about even with the families. What I can say is this, um, we're extensively engaged with regard to, uh, to Austin, um, engaged um, with uh, Syria, engaged with third countries, uh, seeking to find a way to get him home. And we're not going to relent until we do. Let's, as more Arab countries establish diplomatic relations with Syria, that's one hope uh, that, that we have, is that that leverage will be used to, to, get, to get freedom for him. Before we leave this general topic, I want to ask you a question from a, a member of our audience, which is a good one. Uh, this is from uh, Ramunas Bigelas in Connecticut. And the question is, should the State Department warn all journalists to avoid travel to Russia and Belarus? Given the situation you described, uh, given the threats that are so obvious, should the State Department be saying flatly, we don't think you should go at all. Well, the truth is we've instituted something uh, in our travel warnings, uh, a, a D indicator, as we call it, to make sure that every American who is contemplating travel to a certain uh, group of countries understands that they engage in this practice of wrongful detention so that at least people are put on notice. Now, I recognize journalists are in a, in a different category. Um, it's your job to shine a light everywhere in the world, including in the darkest corners. And that comes with extraordinary risk. So yes, as a government, we can certainly recommend that anyone with a, a US passport strongly reconsider traveling to a handful of countries that are known to do this. Um, and we'd say the same thing to journalists, but I also recognize that uh, you feel that you have a job to do. It's an invaluable job and ultimately Journalists have to have to balance that risk, calculate that risk. I have to say, um, we are in the business of ignoring those risks and going to places where people tell us not to go, and I don't think that's going to change. I, I hope it doesn't. Um, so I, I, we wouldn't be doing our jobs as journalists, I wouldn't, if I didn't ask you a little bit about the news of the day, because there's, there's a lot. And I want to start with the, the news overnight from the Kremlin. Uh, accusing Ukraine of having tried to assassinate 
President Vladimir Putin with a drone strike uh, on the Kremlin uh, near near his 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 residence. Ukraine has denied doing this. I want to ask the question this way: What is the United States' position on such attacks on leadership during this war by Ukraine or other combatants? Well, first, I've seen the reports. Um, I can't uh, in any way validate them. We simply, we simply don't know. Um, second, I would take anything coming out of the Kremlin with a very large shaker of salt. So let's see. Uh, we'll see what, uh, what, what the facts are. Um, and it's, it's really hard to comment or speculate uh, on this without really, uh, really knowing what the facts are. More generally, uh, as I've said and as we've said, when it comes to Ukraine, which is under daily assault, uh, and not just its incredibly courageous military forces, but its citizens, its men, women, and children being assaulted on a daily basis by this Russian aggression, being bombed out of their homes, their apartments, and their streets, children killed, families torn apart. Well, we leave it to Ukraine to decide how it's going to defend itself and how it's going to try to get back the territory that's been seized from it illegally by Russia over the past 14 months. And going back to 2014, uh, back to then. So to, to clarify, if Ukraine decided on its own to strike back in Russian territory, the United States would not criticize that. Again, these are decisions for Ukraine to make about how it's going to defend itself, how it's going to get uh, its territory back, how it's going to restore its territorial integrity uh, and its sovereignty. We carried a story this morning that I, I'm sure you've read in which President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, complains about uh, the re reporting about the so-called discord leaks, which contained uh, material on al almost every imaginable, imaginable subject around the world, but of special interest to Ukraine, had, had information said to be U.S. intelligence estimates that Ukraine was running out of air defense weapons, that this war was likely heading toward a stalemate. Zelensky said to our journalists, this was not helpful. One thing that the story said was that you, as Secretary of State, had talked to your counterpart, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, mm -hmm. in April about these leaks that were just uh, hitting. What did you, what did you tell him? Uh, without commenting on purported uh, leaks of, uh, of documents, um, I can say this uh, generically. Um, about the stories that were, were in the press. Uh, what, I, what I told him is we very much regretted uh, the uh, unauthorized um, exposure of these uh, of documents, um, that we took very seriously um, our obligations and responsibility to protect information. Uh, we, of course, have um, uh, arrested someone who is allegedly responsible uh, for this. Um, and at the same time, we were determined to pursue our partnership uh, with Ukraine, our support for Ukraine. I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, Ukrainians, um, as well as many other countries around the world, have benefited from the um, extraordinary information that the United States is able to develop and provide that helps support, defend, protect their security, as well as ours. I have to say, David, going around the world since then, meeting with colleagues from probably dozens of countries, um, this has virtually not, not come up. In fact, to the extent it's come up, I've, I've raised it just to make clear 
how seriously um, uh, we take this. The, the Ukrainians and President Zelensky obviously t took uh, the information uh, in these alleged leaks with special uh, seriousness mm -hmm. because of their planned offensive. They've made no secret of the fact that they want to push the Russians back. Uh, and, and here were arguments that they may have limited success. Documents aside, you study this every day. This is an anguishing war mm. on your watch. Uh, what's, what's your sense as we head into s spring and summer and this long-awaited counteroffensive is about to dawn about Ukraine's ability to alter the balance over the course of this year in this war in a way that might make ending the war possible? What do you think? Well, first this. What, uh, what was published in, um, in the press, in the media, uh, reflected a particular point in time. And this is not static. And so where Ukraine might have been a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, is not where it is now in terms of its ability, for example, to prosecute a counteroffensive counter uh, and to deal with the ongoing Russian aggression. So that's one very important thing to, to keep in mind. Second, um, we have been engaged intensely over many months with about 50 countries in trying to provide the support that Ukraine needs both to defend itself, but also to help regain territory that's been taken by Russia over the last 14, 15 months. Uh, Lloyd Austin uh, has, uh, I think, worked miracles in um, bringing together 50 countries in a very coordinated way. And it's not just the equipment that we provide, because while that's vital, it's not, it's not enough. In and of itself, it doesn't do it. You've got to be able to use it. Training. You've got to be able to maintain it. We've been working on that. And then uh, the Ukrainian forces have to be able to use everything in a coordinated and combined way. And many countries have been working to support them on that. So, I feel uh, confident that uh, they will have success in regaining more of their territory. And I think it's also important to note that for Russia, this is already a strategic failure. Russia sought to erase Ukraine from the map, to eliminate its independence, to subsume it into Russia. That has failed. Um, and of course, Ukraine has regained a big chunk of the territory that uh, Russia originally uh, had its footprints on. Where exactly this settles? remains to be seen. And Ukraine has to make important decisions about exactly where it's going to go, uh, how far it can get, um, and how it wants to pursue this. Uh, but we're determined to sustain that support. We're also determined not only to look at this in the, in the short term, uh, with this intense focus on the counteroffensive in the months ahead, but also for the medium and long term. Uh, because what Ukraine also needs, um, and what many countries around the world are interested in doing on, in a, on a sustainable basis, is to help them develop the kind of military that uh, in the future can effectively deter another Russian aggression, and if deterrence doesn't work, to defend against it, and if necessary, to defeat it. Uh, that is going to put Ukraine in the strongest possible position, as well as helping to rebuild the country and pursuing its integration into Europe, its economic integration. The combination of those things, as well as Ukraine continuing to pursue policies that uh, root out corruption, that put in place transparency, uh, good governance, strong civil society, uh, a vibrant uh, independent media. Those are the secrets to, uh, to success, to resilience, to strength for Ukraine over the coming years in being able to resist further Russian aggression. So we're, we're walking and uh, 
or running even and chewing gum at the same time. <laughs> so that's a useful summary and a hopeful summary of, of where Ukraine will end up. I hear you saying they will gain some territory as a result of this counteroffensive. A question that lies ahead after these months is whether there's some effort to seek a settlement that might include, yes, the United States and Europe, but also China, which has expressed a strong interest in doing so as a 12-point peace proposal. As I look at the 12 points, many of them were ones that we'd probably write ourselves. Mm -hmm. What do you think in, in principle, Mr. Secretary, about the idea of the United States working in parallel some point down the road with China to seek a, a stable outcome here? In principle, um, there's nothing wrong with that. If we have a country, whether it's China or other countries that have significant influence, that are prepared to pursue a just and durable peace, and I'll come back to what that means in a minute, uh, we would welcome that. And it's certainly possible that uh, China would have a, a role to play uh, in that effort. Um, and that could be very beneficial. There were elements in the, in the plan that, uh, that China put out, things that actually it had said and many others had said for some time that uh, were positive. But it has to begin with uh, a couple of things. First, a clear understanding that in this instance, there's a victim and there's an aggressor. There's no moral equivalence uh, between the, the two positions. And I have to say until recently, uh, it was and very unclear whether China uh, accepted that basic principle. I'm still not sure that they do, but at least President Xi has now had a conversation with President Zelensky. That's a positive thing because it's vitally important that China and other countries that have been seeking to advance peace hear from the victim, not just the aggressor. Second, any peace um, really has to be both just and durable. And what do I mean by that? Just in the sense that it has to basically reflect the principles that are at the heart of the United Nations Charter when it comes to territorial integrity when it comes to sovereignty. It can't ratify what Russia has done, which is the seizure of so much of, uh, of Ukraine's territory. And it needs to be durable uh, in the sense that um, we don't want this to land in a place where Russia can simply rest, refit, and reattack six months later or a year later. So we have to look at all of that. But as a matter, as a, as a matter of principle, uh, countries, particularly countries with significant influence like China, if they're willing to play a positive role in trying to bring peace, that would be a, a good thing. But it starts fundamentally with Vladimir Putin actually making that fundamental decision. We've not seen that yet. There is zero evidence that Russia is prepared to engage in meaningful diplomacy. To the contrary, we've seen the horrific um, onslaught just in the past week, again, on civilian targets in Ukraine. Uh, we saw the horrific story of a father in an apartment building who after this attack, opens the door of his children's room to find that it's gone, and they're gone. So there has to be some uh, profound change in Mr. Putin's mind and in Russia's mind to engage in meaningful diplomacy. One more quick question. Uh, we're talking about China. You had a trip that was scheduled to China that you postponed because of the Chinese spy balloon. And I have to ask you, in a period where there seems to be some warming of relations between the United States, the beginning of, mm -hmm. of a thaw, are you hopeful that you may be able to reschedule that trip this year? 
Uh, I am, and I think it's uh, important, as President Biden laid out uh, in, in Bali when he was with President Xi at the end of last year, that we um, reestablish regular lines of communication uh, at all levels and across our government. Uh, we're in a competition with China, there's no secret about that, but we have a strong interest in trying to make sure that that competition doesn't veer into conflict. Um, there's a clear demand signal from around the world that we manage this relationship responsibly, a demand signal on us, but also uh, on Beijing. And that starts with uh, engagement. That starts with uh, communicating. It starts with trying to um, make sure, again, that uh, we don't veer into conflict. If there are areas where we can actually cooperate, because it's in the interests of our people, Chinese people and people around the world, so much the better. But at the very least, we need to have a floor under this uh, relationship. We need to have some guardrails on it. And the way to do that is through engagement. So, Mr. Secretary, um, we want to thank you for, for coming here, for answering all these questions, frankly. Uh, and especially we want to thank you for uh, marking with us World Press Freedom Day. This is a period where journalists are under threat, knowing that uh, senior officials of the U.S. government, uh, the leadership of the United Nations, stand with people in our business in insisting that journalists be free to do their work matters a lot. You know, David, we're, we're also trying, at least in, in my uh, department, to, uh, to walk the walk, uh, not just talk the talk. One of the first things we did, actually probably the first thing we did, was to restore the daily press briefing at the State Department. Virtually wherever I travel, I have your colleagues with me. Uh, and pretty much every stop, we have some kind of uh, press conference, press engagement that brings in our traveling pool, but also brings in journalists from the countries that we're traveling to, including countries that may not have the most open media environment. It's usually important uh, to, uh, to me and to us to demonstrate that we're holding ourselves accountable by making sure that we're answering questions, uh, we're um, engaging with people who have one of the most important responsibilities in this world, and that is uh, to hold governments, uh, to hold institutions to account to shine light uh, where there's darkness, to give people confidence uh, in their institutions, um, in uh, the people who have the responsibility to, uh, to represent them. Um, I think, in my experience, there's actually no more important time for it. I'm incredibly grateful, even if there's some days when <laughs> I don't feel like it, uh, incredibly grateful to, uh, to you and to uh, all of our colleagues. The other day, uh, and let me end with this, I got a chance to sit down with Ben Hall from Fox, who was part of our traveling, uh, traveling family and then was grievously injured in Ukraine, covering the war, trying to shed light on it. Um, extraordinary story. Um, he's back. It was just incredibly good to see him and have a chance to talk to him. I said to him when we started the interview how glad I was to see him back, and I said I'd probably regret saying that about five minutes later when the interview was over. Um, <laughs> but it was just one powerful example of the dangers that so many of our colleagues expose themselves to so that they can bring forward the story, bring forward the truth, and I'm really grateful for it. So uh, amen to those comments, and thanks to our great, uh, courageous colleagues, Secretary of State Anthony Lincoln. Thank you.